Welcome to the On The Tape Podcast. I am Dan Nathan. In just a minute, Guy, Danny, and myself, we sat down with the II-ranked number one chief equity strategist for Morgan Stanley. That is Mike Wilson. We talk about his 2024 outlook and some of the things that he got right and got wrong in 2023. And then Danny, Guy, and myself hit a bunch of single stock stuff that caught our eye this week from GM to some M&A in the biotech space and a whole host of other things. So stick around. Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt Eye Connections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about Eye Connections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. So Mike Wilson is with us. Every quarter you come on, regardless of what's happening, I find the market extraordinarily hard to handle. Your work is extraordinary, as we've said. Dan mentioned you just got voted again number one in what? What is that thing? II, number one. Which is remarkable because you know why? That's your peers that vote on that. And they obviously think the world of your work, as do we. So as we sit here with the S&P 4550 thereabouts, it's surprising me. Where do you sort of gauge things right now? Because I know your thesis hasn't changed. And quite frankly, all the things that you thought would happen are actually getting worse. It's just not manifesting itself in the stock market. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been an interesting year. Uh, frustrating, as you say, because the fundamental call that we've had has actually played out mm-hmm. in spades through you know most of the economy. Now, of course, there's these 10 stocks that have done a terrific job of managing costs. And and that's you know effectuated a pretty good uh, earnings recovery for the S and P because there's such a you know large weight in that. But the average stock and you know most stocks are not having a good year because it's a difficult operating environment. The earnings picture is pretty crummy. The macro environment is I say tenuous at best. The only thing really going for the market right now is that we're at the end of the Fed hiking cycle and we're doing the Pavlovian mm-hmm. response for like the fifth time, by the way, since a year ago. You know we made that call that. Of course, uh, almost took Danny to the hospital a year ago where we, we got <laughs> bullish. We got bullish on the Fed pivot a year ago. Okay, it kind of worked into the year end. And then I, I feel like we've had the Fed pivot call like four times. Mm-hmm. This is the next one. This is probably the real one. This is the one where they actually probably are done. They probably did their last hike in July. So let's go back to October because September and October, I felt like, okay, the thesis really is playing out. I mean, we started seeing all the very interest rate sensitive parts of the market really take a a walloping. The Russell was down 20% from the July highs to the October lows. 
the you know S and P equal weight was down fifteen. Even the S and P was down ten. The the mega caps weren't uh, trading particularly well. And then we had this incredible reversal in the bond market. Mm -hmm. Now some people will say, most people will say that that was Powell getting more dovish. I don't agree with that. I think Powell's just kind of saying what he's always been saying. I think what happened was the bond market was very offsides. People were very short the bond market. There was nobody willing to step in. And then what I would argue is the Treasury, okay, issue, I mean, they orchestrated probably the best short covering squeeze I've ever seen in my life. I mean, they basically guided to this coupon issuance that last summer, and then they issued to a, a less number, and that's all it took. And then you got a lot of real buying on the back of that because, look, at a, at a 5% 10-year, there was a ton of money waiting to make that trade. Mm -hmm. and, and so we now here we are, 70 basis points lower. And I think that explains probably 90% of the rally that we saw in November. I didn't catch it, so bad on us. But I also, it doesn't change my general view that we're still in a very late cycle environment. The Fed is finished, sure, but be careful what that really means for, for growth next year. And, and it, it's, not, it's not a good sign for well, growth. We're going to talk about growth. You had to note out kind of giving your 2024 sort of targets yep. and, and looking out even beyond that 2025. But just talking about the 10-year and that move that it made from, let's call it the start of September in around 4%, right? Up that's to 5%, right? So that was at mid-October or so. And that's when we had the S&P careening lower. Like you said, it was down 10% from its summer highs here. Now, here we are. We're back at those levels. We're back at what? what you know, 4.3 or something like that in the 10-year. But the S&P is 45.50 or so, right? So it's up 11% in a straight line. I think it's like three weeks or something like that. So what is it discounting right here? You've said that we've had that Pavlovian response a few times here. I feel like if all the things that you're looking at from an economic standpoint are going to start to come together as we get into the new year, the stock market is not discounting a whole heck of a lot right now with a 13 VIX also. Part of the stock market is, right? Yeah. Once again, we have this tale of two cities where the lower quality securities are trading poorly. Yeah. So it, it, look, this is this is classic. This is exactly what happens at the end of the cycle, which is you get very narrow. Mm -hmm. The market gravitates towards high quality things that they think can actually generate the earnings growth. Now, this year was a special situation because last year, these remember these seven companies that everybody's in love with mm -hmm. did a terrible job of managing costs in 2022. So that set them up for a very easy comparison mm -hmm. year now. So 24 is going to be harder for these companies. X, you know, there's one in particular that has real top-line growth acceleration. The other ones don't. It's a cost-cutting story. Mm -hmm. So it's just going to be harder now for those companies to continue to generate the earnings growth that they did this year off of the more difficult comparisons. So look, I think we're discounting a, a softish recovery with some reacceleration next year. Our economists who aren't looking for recession, okay, aren't looking for any reacceleration. That's actually the worst outcome is you get like a one and a half percent GDP year next year. Companies don't really fire people aggressively. You don't have a recession, hard landing, but the Fed also really can't cut that aggressively. Mm -hmm. So right now what's priced into the curve is about three cuts next year, mm -hmm. starting either in, in March or in June. That's not really going to be enough to you know get these weaker companies off the mat, in my view. So for now, you just want to stay up the quality curve. We're waiting for the event, the final blow, to either send us into a recession or some indication that there is going to be a reacceleration, like some exogenous positive shock 
which I don't really see. But I mean, I mean, we can make one up, but I, mean, I don't really see where that's coming from. You mentioned in the opening here that the earnings came in in 2023 or will when we're all said and done a little bit better than expected. And it's very concentrated in kind of 10 names. Wouldn't that argue for a lower multiple on the S&P itself, meaning at some point those probably are going to you know, come in a little bit or moderate if these other companies don't catch up? Because I noticed that I think you're on a 17 multiple kind of target, I believe, for your 2024 four number, I believe, if, the, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. yeah. So that's, I mean, that's been our call really going back a year was that we said the, you know, rates have normalized. So multiples should normalize. Mm -hmm. And we think 17 times is the right number in a normal world, right? Not an extreme world, just normal. And let's just do the math on that. You know, in a, in a world where the Fed is not restrictive or, you know, easing, that's a two to two and a half percent Fed funds rate. That's our star. Okay. Then you put term premium on that. So maybe one and a half points for four year, 10 year. And then a 200 basis point equity risk premium on top of that, that gets you like a 16.7 multiple. That's the math, okay? Now, of course, it's hard to predict multiples day to day, but that makes sense to us. And that's why we were always at 3,900 for end of the year, because our earnings forecast for next year hasn't changed. It's 230 times 17. Right now, we're trading closer to 19 times. So to your point, yeah, we think the market is overvalued right now because it's either discounting way more aggressive Fed cuts without a recession, or it's discounting some kind of better growth scenario where earnings are much higher than 230, but more like 250. And that's just not what we're modeling. You know, Mike, you mentioned Pavlovian response. We've used that term a number of times on the podcast, on our market call, and I agree with that. And it's very one-dimensional thinking, but it's working right now. But if rates go precipitously lower from here, my sense is it's not because something good happened. It's because something's probably breaking. So if you're bullish right now, do you want yields just to stop moving, which, by the way, hasn't happened because bond volatility over the last two years has been significant. What are you looking for in the bond market right now for the bull thesis? Well, I think rates need to at least stay here and maybe go lower. I mean, I, I think rates towards 4% is not a problem as long as it's happening in kind of an orderly way where there's not some event or shock and the front end is collapsing. What will be really a bad sign is what happened in March. Okay, so in March, the bond market kind of went to the recession call. Mm -hmm. And what happened is the front end, so when I say front end, I'm talking about you know 12 months mm -hmm. and in, collapsed, right? That's the bond market saying you guys are going to be slashing rates because we're having a hard landing. So if we go to 4%, but the front end kind of stays control, like it's not plunging, that's fine. Mm -hmm. And that would be bullish. And I can't rule that out, by the way. So if you really want to get tactical, okay, like what I would say is, I believe we're going to give up some of these gains from November because month end is today. Mm -hmm. People will kind of protect. I think we'll probably sell off into the first two weeks of December, typically a seasonally not a great time. I'm very confident that companies are walking numbers down now. I mean, because the, the fourth quarter numbers are still too high. So that'll get into the market. Mm -hmm. And then I can't rule out one last push in January because all the 401k money comes in. Um, you know, there isn't an accident yet. And, you know, once again, Pavlovian. And if rates continue to come in early part of next year, because remember, there's a lot of duration buyers, mm -hmm. too, who've been waiting. So there's money, there'll be money coming in in January that'll probably take yields lower initially. Stocks will like that. I, I could even see small mid caps doing a little better for the January effect. And then I think you really got to be concerned. Mike, help, help our listener, help me out actually for a second here. So so if you look at the 10-year yield, okay, it got above 4% and, and then went straight to 5% as we just discussed, okay? This is a matter of months. This is really since the summer, right? But Fed funds, to your point, the last increase that the Fed did was back in July and the upper band is at 5.5%, right? So let's just assume that we have a 10-year that settles in at 4%, a quarter, wherever the heck it is right now, but the Fed doesn't indicate that they are going to be cutting anytime soon. 
soon for a whole host of reasons. You know, they could be very technical sort of reasons. What sort of impact would that have on just the business cycle in general, right? Because yields weren't that high for that long, above 4%, right? But Fed funds has gone up at a pace that we have not seen in 40 years, right? And if it were to stay above 5%, what I'm saying is, isn't that like really restrictive in and of itself, that that spread between the 10-year and Fed funds? Yeah, I mean, the, the higher for longer is when it starts to really bite. And the reason we didn't have a problem this year is because we haven't had to refinance corporate America yet, right? That's next year's business. Right? I mean, people have termed out their debt. Mm-hmm. By the way, you know, most consumers' biggest you know debt is their mortgage, which is fixed. So that's why it hasn't really started to bite yet. But it is starting to bite now. It's starting to bite an interest rate sensitive demand. For example, housing demand, auto demand, anything that requires borrowing, it, that really is falling off a cliff now. So next year, if the Fed doesn't cut significantly, and ten year is four percent or higher, and you got to recapitalize corporate America and the Treasury, okay, that's the big one. If you got to recapitalize the Treasury at four, four and a half, five percent over the next twelve months, that's a lot of money. You're going to crowd out a ton of investment. So that's why the soft landing is actually probably the worst possible scenario for stocks. It's because you, the Fed can't actually cut enough mm-hmm. to create the you know the windfall that we need or the, the tailwind we need for all this refinancing. It has to happen in twenty four and twenty five and twenty six. Mike, one of the things that took the 10-year yields to from four to five in a straight line, I think, was this whole idea of these auctions from the Treasury, supply and demand, who's the increment of buyer going to be. You just mentioned potential soft landing is not a great outcome. I agree, because if tax receipts come in lower for the government, et cetera, where our fiscal deficit's only going to get worse potentially, at what point does that start to overtake the equation for bonds? Because to me, we saw a glimpse of it a couple months ago. That's the abyss right there that we're kind of looking into. Do you expect that? to happen again? I think that the single biggest risk for next year that isn't really being taken seriously is this idea that the government's going to have a really hard time funding itself given the current budget, okay? Like they haven't made any progress on budget negotiations. Mm-hmm. So so let's just assume that we have another $2 trillion deficit next year, okay? They got to issue $2 trillion of paper net, and they probably got to refinance 5 to $7 trillion, meaning they got to refinance at a higher level. That's an incredible increase in interest expense, okay? And at some point, the bond market, we already saw it, it pushed back in the third quarter pretty significantly. Term premium went straight up from when they started announcing they were going to do more coupon issuance. And we saw, you know, 100 basis point increase in the term premium. Why couldn't that happen again next year? People think it's crazy to, to say this. Like, how is this any different than what happened to the U.K.? in the third quarter of 2022, I mean, the bond market pushed back and guess what? The government had to cut spending. So, I mean, we're kind of in that position now. Now we bought, you know, the treasury bought themselves some time here with this big rally in in the back end, some breathing room, but I'm not comfortable at all that that's not going to resurface again next year, particularly once the reverse repo is fully drained. And that's probably going to be drained sometime in the second quarter of next year. And then how do you fund this thing? Who's the natural buyer? Well, it's interesting you're talking about the repo market. It was September of 2019. I think the day was the 17th or so. It doesn't matter. But what you're talking about blew up overnight. The overnight repo market blew up. And that, to me, set the stage for that we subsequently saw in 2020, COVID notwithstanding. But that was sort of a catalyst to me. So what you're talking about, something we should absolutely be watching for. With that said, 
People get on the rating agencies. I get it. They're always late. But what you're talking about will almost by definition force Moody's and S&P's to do something in terms of their U.S. credit outlook yet again. Is that a potential catalyst that nobody seemingly is talking about? Well, it's all part of the same story. And meaning, look, we, we've we overspent our means, okay? It, it started in It started actually, you know, during the COVID lockdowns and it got worse post the COVID lockdowns. And we just kept spending. And we have, we have peacetime you know, deficits of 8% mm-hmm. with unemployment you know, near 4%. I mean, these are numbers that we've never seen before. So what happens if it looks like we are maybe going into a recession or just that maybe tax receipts aren't going to be as good? The bond market's not going to like that. No. I mean, it's just not, it's just going to push back. And as Bill Clinton said back in 1994, you know, said, when I die, you know, I want to come back as a bond trader because they got all the power. You know, he's, he was right because, I mean, the, the bond market can dictate, you know, the government's behavior. I think it already is. I mean, it, it dictated the Treasury. They were going to issue more coupons, but they couldn't. They found a way to finance themselves. They've got this reverse repo smartly, by the way. I mean, you know, they, you know, one thing the Fed did that was smart was when they were doing QE in 21, they socked away some of that money. You know, they they soaked up those reserves by paying a higher interest rate to create mm-hmm. kind of that that slush fund, if you will, for a rainy day. Well, guess what? It's raining. Okay, we got to fund the government. So they're using it now. And it's working exactly, I think, to their plan. I think the risk is that they spent more than they thought they were going to because their tax receipts weren't that good this year, meaning the reverse repo is being sucked up faster, I think, than what they anticipated. And in other words, it's not going to last all the way through November of 2024, which is what their hope was, right, to kind of get through the election cycle and then we'll redo it again. So, look, this is a very tricky situation. It's going to require some threading of the needles. All right, so let's talk about that. Because we started this out, Guy mentioned that you were voted by not just your peers, but your customers, by yeah. institutional investors, okay, the number one strategist on the street. And, and and just for some of our listeners who've not been on the street, this is like, it's kind of a big deal. And I mean that. And so congratulations on that. And so I think it's interesting. We talked about that bullish call that you made that almost sent Danny to the ER. <laughs> last October. And what was funny about that period, because the S&P was down nearly 30% from its highs, okay? And you came in our pod, and was it like a week later, you put out this really tactical trading call. There was fundamental elements, there were technical elements, there was a whole host of things, okay? At that time, most of your peers who had remained bullish the entire 2022, they flipped, they panicked down there. Okay, so I just think that's a really interesting point here. So now we have this situation where we're a little more than a year later. It feels like I I keep hearing of all these calls of a new bull market and the like here. And so how are some of these folks who kind of like wink, wink, nod, nod, you know what I mean? They've been bullish the whole time. You know know how the, the game works a little bit. How do they get turned around again? I'm just like playing the Wall Street strategist game here sure. a little bit. And we have a ton of respect for you. Like Guy said, you've come on our pod, I think, every quarter for the last couple of years. You call it the way you see it, and you're willing to say, I got that wrong. I think you've already said that on this pod here and there about this or that or whatever. How does consensus get it wrong for next year? There's a lot of 5,000 S&P targets or whatever. And, and you know, just give us a sense for like how you're thinking about your peer group in a way, not specifically, but. Like- yeah, I mean, I, I look, I have respect for my peer group and they have respect for me. It's a, it's a pretty, you know, it's a, it's a good, it's a good industry. I don't think there's mutual respect amongst all of us. And it, it, like I said, it's a, it's also a difficult job to try and predict a price target on a certain date. It's kind mm-hmm. of a silly exercise. But having said that, I do think that, you know, this this job, uh, because you're so public, does lend itself to getting over your skis, okay? And, and let me be the first one to say that I probably got a little over my skis at the end of last year, 
you know, feeling pretty confident I could actually call all these, you know, trades and stuff. Nobody can do that. Um, you know, sometimes you feel like you can. I think people now are probably patting themselves on the back a little too much for, you know, mm-hmm. maybe an S&P that's higher for a lot of reasons they didn't identify. Okay, let's be I me. Mean, I don't know anybody who really called this year fundamentally and from the market standpoint for the right reasons. So I think there's a little bit of Monday morning quarterback going on, and, and I'm guilty of that sometimes too. And I think the way people get twisted around now is that January of last year, okay, I think 70, 75% of my clients were in kind of the recession camp, okay? Of course, that didn't play out this year. And there were some reasons for that that were kind of hard to see, number one being the fiscal spend. And now it's the opposite. Now it's 75, 80% are in the soft landing camp. And somehow the risk of recession today is lower than it was 10 or 12 months ago, which makes absolutely zero sense to me. Now, it doesn't mean a recession has to happen next year, but how can it be that the risk of a recession is lower 12 months later in the cycle? The Fed is closer to being done. The curve has been inverted for longer. All the signs are there. It doesn't make any, like mathematically, it doesn't make any sense. So people have been walked down the plank. Okay. They've been forced to kind of adopt a narrative because the market has forced them to do that. And I think you know, that's the hard part of this job is sort of st- holding your ground and saying, well, look, the fundamental picture from my standpoint still kind of points to a very narrow market, kind of a, a low quality, a low risk reward opportunity from an equity market standpoint. And, you know, you know we're, we're just going to call it like we see it, you know, and notwithstanding the fact that we, we also understand we got to trade some of this stuff. Like I said, I think we could have a rally again in January after a sell-off. I mean, that's a tactical move. I, my core fundamental view is that we're probably going to trade a lot lower during the year next year than, than anybody's in print in right now. You just mentioned that people are forced. I think that's important. And we've talked about this all the time, that as a portfolio manager in Boston, you can't be in cash. I mean, you have to take positions. You have to pick a sector to overweight or underweight. And they get forced. They got forced in the first six weeks of the year. And I feel like they're getting forced now in kind of the back six weeks of the year. The one thing that I really have trouble reconciling, and you just mentioned it, is we go through these periods of unexpected problems that occur. The Silicon Valley Bank, 1% of people were expecting, you know, two or three or four banks to go under, right? But what did the Fed do? They came to the rescue with a $500 billion BTFP. What else happened? The debt ceiling. We had no crisis because we punted until 2025. We keep kicking the can down the road. So my question to you is, it's hard as a strategist to try to figure out what can the magic bullet be. But the magic bullet for the last 13 years has been the Fed Treasury coming up with programs. I have no doubt that TALP 2.0 will reemerge if the funding market sees up. I have no doubt that the Fed will stop quantitative tightening for a period of time if the reverse repo and all the other stuff starts to happen. So how do you convince a market player to say, ignore all the important things and just say, know that the Fed or the government has your back? Because it feels like we're just Pavlovian in that way. I know I'm asking the impossible question in terms of how do you, but what are your thoughts on that just in general? When will it matter? Well, I mean, that is the bull case. Okay, like that's the only way I can really get to 5,000 next year is if the the Fed basically says, well, we're close enough. You know, we don't really need to take inflation down to target. We don't really need to make sure that we've got inflation beat here. You know, we're going to cut rates a couple hundred basis points and not only stop QT, but QE. Is that possible? Yeah. I mean, as you said, I mean, there's no doubt that they'll do that if it gets really bad. The question is, do they do that before it gets bad? And, you know, I can't rule that out. It's an election year as well. There are ways uh, the government has of getting money into the system. I mean, they did it, you know, a year and a half ago when they didn't really need to. Governments do that. That's not a one party thing. Both parties are guilty of that. So you have to be prepared mentally for these kinds of interventions that you thought maybe were impossible or that they weren't going to do again this time. You know, we saw it in March. 
And by the way, I misread that. That was probably one of my bigger mistakes this year was saying, oh, well, this isn't really QE, but it was kind of a QE program. It was an offset to the QT that they were doing, and it bought us more time on the clock to kind of, you know, forestall a real credit crunch, okay? But now the clock is ticking again, and, and the credit crunch is, is resuming. In other words, we're going to have negative credit growth probably in Q4 and Q1, and that's just a very difficult situation for the economy in, in my view. It's interesting you mentioned that because, yes, they could throw money at the system without question, and if you look at it through the lens of the stock market, seemingly it's working for this administration, yet when you poll people to the extent that polls matter, they say the economy is in a shambles, and the president's approval rating is probably as low as any sitting president's seen in quite some time. So that could happen, but one has to wonder if it's going to change the narrative for this administration, which is another topic for another time. But what is important, I think, for this administration is employment. And that's been slowly ticking up. The leading economic indicators, I think, are down for the last 19 months. We talked to Liz Ann Saunders about that last week. If you look around the edges, the employment picture is deteriorating. It has not manifested itself necessarily in the rate. But I think it's just a matter of time. And personally, I don't think it's going to be linear. I think it's going to be sort of this three nine four three four seven. You're going to wake up one day and we're going to be approaching 5%. That's not bullish. And I think that's what the market might not be looking at. Am I on to something there? Well, the employment cycle has already begun. Whether it's the SOM rule, there's, there's a bunch of different mm-hmm. kind of historical precedents. Like we've already crossed the Rubicon in many ways. I like to look at the conference board employment trend. And that, too, is now 16 months in a downtrend, which is kind of past the point of no return. So it's already begun. The question is, when does it become nonlinear, right? You hit the nail on the head. That's like the light switch going off. Usually it's an event. Usually it's like it's another financial shock or it's a geopolitical event. It could have been the terror attack from Hamas. It could have been that. If oil prices had shot up, that could have been it. That could have been the blow. But it wasn't because oil prices remained controlled. As horrible as the attacks were, it didn't do much to the economy. Okay, But it could be another, it could be another shock like that. And that's typically the way it goes. Could that be a year away still? Maybe. I mean, we don't know. It's probably not a year away. Now, the other way it can happen is just that the small, medium businesses continue to see erosion in their mm-hmm. earnings and cash flow. And eventually... They just start laying more people off collectively. The other thing I would point out in the, in the jobs data, which is important, is that the, almost all the job creation this year has come from the government. Mm-hmm. It's through the CHIPS Act program, the IRA. That's where the manufacturing jobs have been really hot out west. And then you see social services and things like that. If you back all that out, the private job creation right now is is below where it needs to be to maintain the unemployment rate, which is why we're ticking up. So, I mean, we're kind of there. It's just the market doesn't want to recognize it yet in a collective manner because of these seasonal pressures Mm -hmm. to perform, the rally in the bond market, whatever it might be. We got oversold, so people were out of position. And so the last month to me seems pretty technical. I think the next two months or three months will be technical, and then something will happen, and you'll be like, aha, that's it. And, you know, I thought it was going to be the the regional bank stuff in in March, but that wasn't enough. We, We had enough gas in the tank. When you think of something happening, okay, so, you know, we've had this conversation with a whole host of folks over the last few months, and if the technical reaction to rates coming from 5% in the 10-year down to 435 or where they are was to buy stocks, there's a scenario where if you go back to, you know, the rate hiking cycle into the 2000 highs and then the pause there, right, and then what happened afterwards, we all know. When the Fed started to cut interest rates, they cut aggressively, stocks got cut in half. Same thing happened, obviously 
obviously, as the Fed stopped raising rates into the financial crisis, there was a pause. And then when they started cutting, they started cutting aggressively, not good for risk assets. Again, obviously, we could use the example 2020. It was a bit of a black swan, right? But if you just look at like a 45-year chart of the 10-year U.S. Treasury or Fed funds rate or whatever, you see we've totally overshot the downtrend that has been in place. So if there's a reason for them to cut, they're going to probably cut aggressively. Do you agree with that or, or no? And then in that scenario, what does that mean for stocks? Because the last few times, it wasn't great for stocks. We had a down 55%, a down 55%, a down 35%, right? And last year in 2022, felt pretty orderly, you know, like it felt like a manageable sort of sell-off. And, and now I feel like we are the mirror opposite in 2023 of what happened in 2022. And I feel like something's got to give in 24. Here's the historical precedent. So this, and this is what people are excited about. So in the last four cycles, okay, they were non-inflationary cycles. And the Fed, okay, when they cut interest rates, the market always goes up for a period of time, for like three to 12 months. It's usually, it's usually quite good. And that's what people are looking forward to. The problem is, is that in inflationary expansions, like mm -hmm. 69, 73, and 80, okay, it didn't work. Because by the time the Fed's cutting, it's too late. They can't proactively cut interest rates in an inflationary expansion. And that's, I think, the piece that, like a lot of clients, we talk to them about this all the time. I think they look at our data and like, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. Some are already onto it because they're smarter than we are. But I don't think most stock operators appreciate that this cycle is different than the last four. And so the, the typical playbook of the last Fed hike and then a cut is always bullish. No, it's actually not. It's actually very bearish. So if they start cutting in March... That's probably a really bad sign. Mm -hmm. And I think that that'll be part of the process. So here's a scenario which I've been kicking around in my head because, you know, I'm trying to think of all the permutations. This is sort of my top scenario, which is that the Fed probably is cutting rates sooner rather than later because the data is going to get worse and they're going to react to that. I mean, unemployment is going to keep going up and they're going to start cutting rates. But instead of the back end coming down, the back end is going to go up. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Because the bond market is going to start freaking out that, oh, my goodness, we're actually going into recession. We already have an 8% deficit. How are they going to fund this mm -hmm. thing? And the term premium may actually blow out. That would be a very uh, unexpected kind of reaction function in the bond market, which would then translate back into stocks in a negative way from a multiple standpoint. That's black swanny stuff that you're talking about because that- Well, it's, no, end, of, it's, it's end of cycle stuff. It's, it, it's, but end of cycle. it's end of cycle stuff different this time, just in terms of the absolute numbers associated with sure. them. I mean, we're talking about multiples of what we've been historically in terms of debt to GDP and all those things. Thing. So I don't want to get too hyperbolic here, but that's not a great scenario at all. It's also different than what people are probably expecting. So once again, these scenarios are speculative. So I would say I'd put a 25% chance mm -hmm. on that, but it's not a total tail risk. As investors, we have to think about, well, what are the risks that people aren't talking about or thinking about so we can be prepared in our portfolios and how to react to them? That's the one that I'm kind of zeroed in on now because of what happened in the third quarter in the bond market. That risk is clear and present still, 100%. Mike, Dan had asked the question when he was talking about last year, how you kind of went against everybody else and you were right on the money and everybody tends to move the same way. And that's true for every product that we see. How do you measure sentiment? What, what are the things that you look at? Because survey out today that JP Morgan, Treasury, cash holders, the largest, you know, one-sided it's ever been. Everybody's on one side of the boat. What do you look at and what should people be looking at to feel from a behavioral finance 
perspective, they can be somewhat contrarian. I mean, we look at a lot of different things, and I would say there's a couple. We track institutional manager positioning. There's a service, NAIIM. It's a National Association of Institutional Investors, and that's very elevated again. It was it was actually quite low in October, but they came roaring back. So their disclosed you know sort of positioning relative to benchmark is very aggressive right now. The individual investor poll, AAII bull bear spread, that's also extremely bullish again, which is a, a contrarian indicator. We have our own internal prime brokerage data. You know, we're the largest prime broker in the world. So we can see hedge funds, you know, how they're set up. And they've also added a lot of risk back after being pretty washed out in October. They're not extreme, but they've added risk back. So I would say on a scale of one to 10 right now, sentiment's probably like a seven and a half, eight. And when you risk adjust it for like the environment that I think we're in, it's probably closer to a nine, 10. I mean, big people have too much length on mm-hmm. given how they feel. So for example, like our clients, you're you're nice enough to mention you know, our clients did vote for us this year. We have great relationship with our clients because like our clients are smart. They're not dumb. Okay. Like they agree with, with a lot of things that we're saying and they've had a hard time trading this market too. So if you're being a purist, okay, you're actually investing. You're not like, you know, some day trading, you know, Jamuk, you know, doing whatever on Twitter. Okay. You're, you're earning real money. Okay. You're actually investing real capital for people as a fiduciary. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's not a good setup right now. Okay. For risk taking, which is why everybody's crap into these, what I would call very defensive names. I mean, that's what the MAG-7 is. They're, they're perceived defensive growth, okay? And they had a special situation this year of, you know, an easy comparison and cost cutting. So they were able to generate, you know, good earnings revisions. And so they're doing what they should be doing. They're, they're going to the highest quality place to make money. So that's why I really do believe that if things start to turn, like the smart money is going to go. I mean, they're not hanging out, waiting, because they're kind of in our camp already. You know what I mean? They have to perform. They have to keep exposures up. Well, those stocks might be defensive, but they're also now, in terms of the spectrum, they're out there now. That's right. In terms of their historical norms and where the broader market is trading as well. But you mentioned risk. The volatility index is something that I think, you know, I don't understand it as well as I probably should. I think it's a much different instrument than it was six, seven, eight years ago. But at 13, it's saying something that I think the rest of us are not seeing. Is the VIX even on people's radar screens? Should it be at this point? Or is it just a flawed instrument? You know, that's a good question. I'm not a, I'm not a vol trader, and there's a lot smarter people who have a better opinion on this than I do. But what I would say is, you know, vol only works at the extremes. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a, as a signal. I mean, when it's high, it can stay low for a long time. And of course, now there's all these different products and, you know, the, the whole gamma argument, like how desks manage their risk. And like when you get into these year-end situations, you, you can find that the indices get pinned around these levels because there's so much exposure on both sides. And then people are managing around that specific number. But then if that stuff goes away, that the gamma gets goes away, that's when volatility can spike. Right now, it appears as if volatility is probably in a 13 to 20 range. Like I don't see the 40 spike right now because there's a year-end, there's so much liquidity being put into the system from the feds, from the banks, you know, to make sure that the year closes out well. And that didn't work so well in 2018, but that was a that was a little bit of a unique situation. But normally this time of year, it's it's hard to get a big ball spike. 18 was a was very unusual. One of the shiny objects, the new shiny objects is private credit. I love this. It's always existed, right? Private banks have retrenched. They're not lending. No, banks are still lending. They're just underwriting on stricter standards. So they're but this private credit wave and people think it's a magic bullet. Granted, it's locked up money. All the big banks are obviously involved in raising capital for it. So you don't have to comment on that. But in general, 
it's still the the companies that are are the beneficiary of receiving this credit are going to be paying 13, 14, 15% these loans. What are your thoughts on private credit? Because people will point that either they want to be a part of it or that it's a bullish sign the economy is a replacement for the banks. It all comes down to underwriting, right? So I, I, one thing that concerns me is that in the last, or at least since the GFC, the shadow banking system has you know exploded. And unbeknownst to me, uh, I learned this this year is that the, apparently the regional banking system is a shadow banking system because it was unregulated for the most part, which is really amazing when you think about how unregulated that part of the, the market is. But so if you, if you take the regional banking system and then you take the private credit folks who've really grown up in this wild west era where capital was kind of free, thanks to the Fed, you have some pretty lenient and probably some pretty lax underwriting policies that have been employed. And I think there's probably a lot more bad credit out there all over the place because of those lenient underwriting standards that have been utilized. So that's what I do worry about that, Danny. The other thing I worry about is that there's this, there's this general view that, oh, well, the private credit folks will just take the place of the regionals. It, it won't matter. But that's a joke because they don't have the bodies. I mean, like private credit guys are not in position to make mortgages for mom and pop or loan to small businesses that need working capital in the strip mall in Peoria, Illinois. I mean, like that's my main concern for next year is that like all of these businesses around America is very fragmented, like are kind of being cut off from capital that they need to run their businesses at, at a reasonable rate. Okay. And you know, the 13, 14, 15% levered loans and stuff like that. I mean, a lot of that is going to refinance private equity deals. Now that doesn't matter because that just means the private equity guys will make a lower return. Okay. In fact, it's gotten so bad that some of the private equity guys now are actually buying that debt. They're, you know, they're actually saying, well, I'm not giving 18% with a pick rate, you know, to somebody else. I'll just take it down myself. I mean, that's how expensive it's gotten to your point, but this is how it's supposed to work, right? I mean, this shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. I mean, the, the Fed raised rates at the fastest rate in 40 years, and now it's having a constraining effect on the weakest players in the economy. And it's all going to plan. It's just, it always takes a little bit longer than you think. So that coupled with the, the concentration, again, let's just kind of go to this mag seven for a second. I see Apple is nearly $3 trillion and market cap is up nearly 50% on the year. And it's near an all-time high. Microsoft, same thing, near 3 trillion. It's up 58% on the year at an all-time high. Alphabet is up 50% on the year. It's not there. I mean, like, just we're doing the math. I mean, like, so we're, we're talking about $13 trillion in market cap, seven stocks, 30% of the S&P, 50% of the NASDAQ 100. We talked about the easy comparisons, especially with the cost cuts this year, 2024, a higher for longer environment. You know what I mean? Let's let assume that's how we start the year, at least through Q1. And Guy talks about this a lot, right? So these are huge beneficiaries of passive investing. They're also, you know, deemed to be defensive. They also are self-funded. You know, there's a whole host of things, right? They, they look great. But you just talked about sentiment indicators and you talked about the sorts of things like I've never seen more of a one sided trade to the sort of magnitude. You know what I mean? In the markets, like what sort of risk is there? We have a lot of people who, you know, we, we've been talking about this a lot for the better part of the last couple of years. But it seems like it's really worked well on the way up on the markets. It didn't work well last year. At last year, the S&P was still making highs the first couple of trading. And it was when these stocks joined the party is when it was a definitive bear market, in my opinion. So how much risk do you 
you think is in this concentration and how is it different? Because a lot of folks will tell you at every, you know, past bull cycle, we've always had this sort of concentration. I think it's a little different this time. Well, the only other time it's been this concentrated, and I, I saw this from somebody on Twitter, they posted this in Credible Source, but the only time it's been this concentrated was uh, Nifty 50, 73, 74, and then in 2000. So this is the third time and, you know, we kind of know how it ends. The bad story is that these stocks will have to get re-rated. The good story is that capital will get reallocated mm-hmm. to other parts of the market. And so as pessimistic as I sound right now, I'm actually getting excited finally. Like, cause I, I think we're getting closer to that pitch where valuations will get smoked and then you can actually do the rotation that I really want to do, which is go buy the small, medium businesses that are going to survive and are actually on sale and it can grow. That's what we were kind of hoping for just a month ago at (laughs) 4,100 in the S&P. When you think about it, we're like, can we make a quick shot down to 3,700 or something like that? Because then there will be a lot of unusual values in a way. I mean, I didn't even get to the alphabet and the meta. Those are kind of reasonable. I'm going to say this, Amazon versus its expected growth. It actually looks more reasonable on a valuation basis than it has, I think, in a very, very long time. There's a lot of great secular stories out there. I think the last couple of times you've been on the pod this year, we've talked about the hype in and around AI. We know that these stocks will not be able to live up to the hype of 2023. At some point, there will be a reckoning in the next, you know, call it three to 12 months or something for many of these stocks. And you know, some of these big ones, they were down 15% at their lows about a month and a half ago from their July highs. So could they be down 25%? Of course they could be, you know? And I think the problem that I have going back to guys, VIX at 13 or the S&P at 45, 50 or whatever, there's nothing being priced in for that. And, you know, with the S&P on your 2024 estimate, right, for earnings, we're trading at like 20 times right now. Seems kind of expensive and it's kind of top end loaded, right? That's right. And it'll get reset at some point. It was in the process of doing that, like I said, in September and October. I felt like we were on our way. And then we got interrupted by this, you know, year-end rally, lived different by bonds. So we got to deal with that. Is it, you know, frustrating because we got to wait a little longer? Yes. But what I think listeners really need to understand is don't get caught up in the momentum, okay? Like, this is not the time to be adding risk because you just had a, a 10% vertical move. Come on, guys. I mean, but it's human emotion. It's human nature. You want to buy something that's up and to the right. You don't want to buy something that's down and you know to the right. It's, it's just hard. But this is the time you really got to be disciplined. The energy space over the last month has seen a, at least three major, the last of which Occidental buying a private company. Obviously, we talked about Exxon and Chevron. Collectively, they probably add up to about $120 billion-ish. Is that a, I mean, it's not a bad sign, I understand, but is those the type of green shoots you'd be looking for more M&A as we get into yeah. next year? Yeah, I want to see more of that. I mean, I want to see it you know, broadly too, right? I want to see M&A, you know, once again, you know, companies aren't stupid, right? They're, they're not buying stuff because stuff is expensive and they can't make it work, particularly at these financing costs. So that'll be part of the, you know, the, the bottoming process. And you'll know it's real when you see more transactions, both in the private market and the public market. So it's a start, but it's very narrow. Like mm-hmm. you said, there's a handful of deals that are happening. I mean, we're so quiet on the deal front right now. I mean, it's kind of boring. And Mike, just real quick, because I think part of this, if you want to put a bullish hat on at all, is that the U.S. market on a relative basis is the sexiest market. When I say that, I mean, there's no growth in China really to speak of. It's slowing dramatically. Europe's been in a recession, at least most of it has been. You got issues in Japan, right? They're finally coming out of getting some type of inflation, but growth is now moderating again. So how do you look at that relative to say, okay, I can understand that you would allocate more to the U.S., How much does that count into the valuations, you think? It's hard to pin it down. I'm just curious your thoughts on that in general. 
Well, absolutely. This year, I mean, it was supposed to be the year of the China reopening, right? I mean, it was supposed to be the big year of international stocks a, a year ago. And of course, that did manifest itself. So that just drove more money into the U.S. So, I mean, like, I mean, you know, the dollar's been stronger for most of the year until recently. And it's just, it's been a capital magnet. You know, the U.S. is still by far the, you know, the dirtiest or the cleanest shirt in the closet. And for that reason, you you pay a premium. And because it's so bifurcated, you pay even a, a crazier premium on some of this stuff. But it, you know, it all, it, it all makes sense. You know, it's like a virtuous circle. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, calamity when we have a correction. Okay. Um, but it would make our lives a lot easier if we could just get some, you know, some clarity on, you know, kind of the end of this cycle, then we can know what the Fed's going to do and, and we, we can kind of make decisions. Because, you know, the Fed not having finished their rate hike cycle has got companies frozen too, right? I mean, and, and that's not healthy, right? The companies don't want to hire, they don't want to spend CapEx dollars because they don't really know what's going on. And so I think we need some finality to it. That will loosen up purse springs. It'll loosen up activity in the private economy, not just the public economy. Michael, it's always an honor to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. We wish you obviously continued success. Again, congratulations on that ranking. It's extraordinarily well-deserved and look forward to talking to you in the first quarter of next year. Thanks, guys. Always great to be here. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, Visit iConnections.io. In 1968, (laughs) Otis Redding, the great Otis Redding, sitting on the dock of a bay, Otis Redding. But that's not what we're here to talk about. He released a song in 1968. Many years later, it was made famous and covered by what I think is one of the more underrated bands of the last 30 years, the Black Crows. The name of that song is Hard to Handle. And I will tell you something. We all watched the Elon Musk interview, Dan Nathan, Wednesday evening on CNBC. And I thought Andrew Ross Sorkin or Jonathan Ross Sorkin did an excellent job. But Elon Musk is one hard to handle guy. And we won't get into the vernacular that he used. And we'll briefly talk about it, Dan. But that was 
regardless of what you think of Elon Musk, that hour and a half-ish was must-watch TV. There, there was something kind of for everyone, for those who kind of don't like him as a person and find him divisive or find him anti-Semitic or find him this or whatever. And then there was this other part of the interview when he was talking about regulation. He was talking about a whole host of other things that actually made a lot of sense to me. And I, I guess that's the issue with this guy. You know, it's just, it's really, he is hard to handle. I mean, in, in many different ways. I thought Andrew Ross Sorkin did a very nice job handling him and, and getting him on the record for some things I think are very important, you know, from his own companies, from regulatory issues, from politics. So I, I thought it was pretty interesting. I don't think it did what he hoped it to do. You know, he was just off a plane from Israel. We know what he's hoping to do there, what, you know, spending the time there. I think he comes off as a little bit unhinged. And Danny, before I kick it over, I just want to say one thing that's really interesting. I just read this before we came on. Tesla went into the S&P 500 basically three years ago to the month, okay, in December 2020 at nearly the exact same price in which it's trading right now. And I find that really interesting. And really because a lot of this interview yesterday was spent in and around what he does on Twitter. Right. And and I think the headlines were about what he had to say about advertisers who are not advertising on Twitter. But I've long said, and I know you agree, that Tesla shareholders are on the hook for all intents and purposes for what happens at Twitter. And I think that's the one of the reasons why I think it's worthwhile to connect the two. I guess there's a line from that song, Action Speaks Louder Than Words. He says what he said. He is he is who he is, but I'm still watching all the unfulfilled promises of the things that he said. So until we see action that changes my viewpoint as it relates to Tesla, that it's not just a car company, then I'm going to, you know, keep looking at it that way. So I really don't want to spend any time on him or the company if I don't have to. So I have no further comment at this time, Judge. Actions speak louder than words, and I'm a man of great experience. And we've all been in the market for quite some time. Something else that's been hard to handle, Danny, is sort of this I don't want to call it meteoric rise of the S&P, but it's a S&P that has gone higher in the face of all the things that we've talked about. It has me a bit confounded without question. Obviously, yields have a lot to do with this. 10-year yields went from 5%. I think they got all the way down to four and a quarter percent earlier today, today being Thursday, only then to go north of 4.3% on a higher PMI. So, so many cross currents, but from 30,000 feet, Danny, talk about the broader market over the last week, week and a half. Yeah, it's been the chase that we thought could happen towards the back end of the year that we saw at the start of the year, the FOMO um, on it. And really, again, it comes down to a handful of stocks, but you could argue this time it's a little bit more broad based. You're seeing the Russell obviously really accelerate here. And I think that's all it is, is people need to chase performance. And listen, you're right. It's about rates. And I don't know if this is the rate reversal that we're going to see. We've gone from, what, over five to almost 420 back, just like you said, to 4.3 on the 10-year. Waller and a bunch of other Fed speak this week confirmed what Fed fund futures are already telling us. So there's nothing really new in the marketplace. Bank of America, we'll talk about this, said they had their busiest buyback corporate action that they've had in forever, you know, at least in a couple of days that have gone by here. So there's foaming at the mouth here for sure. And again, when you're talking about trying to value the S&P itself, whether it's a 16 multiple, a 17, a 19, a 20, what's hard about that is you're going to have people that argue that we're near a trough, that, you know, earnings came in 2023 a little bit better than expected, that you'll have some form of growth in 2024 potentially. So game on, I guess, you know, if, if you believe that we're going to get through this, which I don't in a soft landing scenario, I don't. But therein lies the big question, guys. And that is this. If you are a soft landing person, and we're going to get into this and talk about some sectors, there are some sectors which you can no longer ignore. And I think we're setting up for an opposite reaction in Q1 2024 that we had in Q1 2023. 
Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Danny, I was listening to you and, and Vinny and Porter uh, on the pod on Monday, and I know you didn't love to hear this out of Vinny, though, but he did say, listen, you know, with crude oil coming in the way it has, with yields coming in the way it has, you can kind of squint and you can kind of see, okay, so maybe S&P earnings in 2024 aren't 11%, which is what consensus is right now. Maybe it's mid-single digits or something like that. And you can say to yourself, okay, maybe we did avoid a deep recession that the S&P was pricing in late last year. And and maybe they did kind of at least tamp down inflation. I think the point is tamp down inflation expectations, right? Like that would be the big thing. And when we just got through a bunch of earnings over the last week and a half or so from a bunch of tech companies, and we saw a lot of gaps higher to new 52-week highs. And, you know, one of the themes that I took away of the regular cycle Q3 earnings was the lack of visibility that was evident in the Q4 guidance that we saw. But the fact that investors are willing to buy these stocks and bid them up to levels that they have not been in in a year, I think is very interesting. It does say something about investor psychology in this rate environment, in this inflationary environment. It does say something about expectations for inflation in 2024. And we'll get more granular with Mike Wilson on all of those things. But another line in the song, Danny, and stay with me here. Take my hand. Don't be afraid. I'm going to prove every word I say. Somebody clearly took the hand of Mary Barra and the, I guess, the investment committee or the the board and talked them into an accelerated $10 billion stock buyback earlier this week that got the market excited. I don't necessarily think it's changing the fortunes of GM in terms of all the problems they face, but that was a pretty come out of nowhere, interesting, basically series of developments with GM. We're going to basically slow down cruise development, right? Because of issues they had in California. We're basically going to slow down our investment into electric vehicles, which we already knew. We settled our union issues and here we go. And I'm going to splash this thing so hard that you can't ask me. Don't splash about the it. pot. This is my splash club. Pot. Splash it anytime and I want. How, Sorry. Splash the pot. How can you, you now it's a $10 billion accelerated, but that's not it. 6.8 of the 10 billion occurring this week. Yeah. That you don't do yourself any favors by doing that. Whatever broker talked them into that, right, to let's go out and do this is insane to me because you'll end up paying probably more and people are going to be willing to sell it to you. That being said, I mean, you think about the economics. It's a 43, 44 billion market cap company. You're buying back almost 25% of it. You increased your dividend from nine cents quarterly to 12. Great. You know, it's fine. And the earnings out there are, what, five to six bucks this year, five to six, or even more next year. It's hard to ignore a stock at five to six times earnings. So separate yourself from, they probably could have bought the stock over a period of time, a dollar or two lower, I'm sure, rather than just running into this thing like they did, which I don't really understand why. Unless they're trying to say that we're going to buy up as much as we can now because we believe it's going much higher. But Well, well it, Danny, is it that... that- to me is actually the point. If you had their peak earnings of $6.70 on a gap basis in 2021, expected to do 6.85 this year, right? And then, you know, consensus has it 6.58 next. You want to buy as much near multi-year lows as possible for the accretion. If you think that you're basically going to be able to cut costs and grow earnings faster than consensus thinks, it's just that much more accretive. Well, listen, there's ways to do it. You can tender for it. You can end up issuing a special dividend later if you really want to return capital. You can do a lot of things, right? I'm sure the earnings will go up on their own just from there being less shares outstanding. But 1.37 billion shares outstanding, you're buying 16% of it you know, during the course of the week. I'm sure some of it was front-loaded. Brokers are probably already buying it up for them. Oh, look what I have for you. 
you know, you're going to buy it back. So believe me, a lot of gamesmanship goes on. It's a tough way to communicate it, Dan. I get it. There's other ways to do it. It just seemed a little bit shocking to me. If they were trying to create shock and awe, and again, don't look over here, look over here, then they did a good job at it. I'll just say this. I think it was almost to the day, 13 years or so ago, when GM reemerged in the form of an IPO. And I want to say, Danny, you probably, because you have a steel trap mind, I want to say it was like $34-ish. or so. It was something, this stock outside of a huge run that we saw in 2021 and 2022, this stock has been nowhere. And you're talking about a stock that's effectively the same price as it was when it reemerged in an environment where the market's done nothing but gone up. And Dan, in an environment where you can make an argument that the last 15 years has been the greatest single period of time for automakers since... Henry Ford. Yeah. So it, it did come at 33 bucks in yeah. 2010. So here we are at $32. Uh, it seems like the company's buying back, to Danny's point, 16% of the shares outstanding, right, um, at that point. I mean, you know, I'll just say this. It's like when you think about, like, industrials and you think about, you know, how much, like, how many headwinds there have been, right, to this company since the financial crisis. And I, I think tamping back their expectations in the EV space makes a lot of sense. Look at how... All the EV players are going to have to tamp back their expectations, right, for for the uptake of these products right now. So, like, you could find yourself in a GM and Ford after a very poor period of their stocks, maybe set, maybe there's going to be an ice resurgence for Detroit. You know what I mean? Now that they have these kind of labor issues um, behind them, maybe there's a few-year runway where, to Danny's point, these stocks are just way too cheap in a market that is actually, like, a lot of things appear to be overvalued in a way. So I, I don't know. I think you probably make a decent case why if GM for any reason in the next, I don't know, few months or something like that fills in the gap from earlier this week on this announcement is probably a buy. Here's the big difference. During the financial crisis, they had GMAC internal. They had their finance engine inside. It's now Ally. It's been fun. They won't have the same issues they had in the last downturn because they won't have those losses on their balance sheet. Yes, they need Ally to basically help put people in cars. I get it. So it's a little bit different structure. So if you're a soft landing person out there, people like, I don't know how you don't take a little stab at, at this thing, at these valuations, knowing that not only are you going to have this buyback, but again, they're going to continue with the rest of it, whatever the, the last 3.2 billion of it going forward. Danny, pay attention. In keeping Ready? with the theme of the Black Crows, baby, oh boy. here I am. I'm a man on your scene. I can give you what you want, but you got to come home with me. That speaks to a relationship. That speaks to somebody asking somebody to do something to trust in that person. It speaks to what I would say, a merger and a potential acquisition. That's what that song speaks to. And it's happening, Danny, right before our eyes. You know, we talked about Exxon. We talked about Chevron. Earlier this week, we heard from Oxy, a Warren Buffett company. Obviously, now we're Cigna, Humana, UNH, all this stuff in the mix. A lot of M&A chatter out there, which theoretically, actually, Dan, but Danny first, should be somewhat constructive. So saying with the theme, you got to come home with me, Danny Moses. There you go. Well, AbbVie also making a biotech mm -hmm. acquisition. Billion dollar bid for immunogen. Did I say that correctly? Immunogen. 
Communigen. Anyway, yes, listen, we've been talking for the last six weeks. You asked me point blank, I think it was Dan, about, oh, these large Wall Street banks. And I said, well, listen, if the M&A window opens, I could paint a picture that things can start to, you know, be a little bit more constructive on them. And I actually talked about last week, follow up on an earlier comment that Dan made. I did say that if you want to put your bullish hat on with oil coming in and rates coming in, it's going to loosen financial conditions and help the consumer. So let me just close the loop on that. But listen, they're going to try to get everything out the door. We're talking about IPOs that are going to be coming in Q1. We keep hearing about new ones, you know, Shine's going to give it a shot, right? All the stuff that's going to happen. So they're going to try to hit this window. And if these conditions stay like this, a little bit looser than they than they were, they'll we'll probably get it done. So some to definitely have to pay attention to. And it's something that is arguably bullish. The market, especially if you can find stocks that you know could be targets in various areas, because if the rates feel stable, listen, there's a reason companies are coming in right now and starting to accelerate buybacks that they've been waiting all year. Maybe they feel a little bit more confident. So that's really all it is. And it's part of the market cycle. It's funny though, when you think about the rate environment though, it doesn't really lend itself to basically raising cash and buying back stock. There was a time where that worked really well, right? When we were in that ZERP sort of period. And the same thing for how you're going to actually buy companies, right? So if you have to raise cash or use cash to do that, the cost of capital is very different right now, right? But if you have an expensive stock and you can do stock for stock deals, at least in the public markets, you know, that makes a lot of sense too. And so, you know, I'll just say this, I, I would say in tech, might we see a bunch of strategic M&A in the new year, especially maybe for public companies, maybe buying some private companies using their currency in which to do so. And, you know, if you just go back over the course of the last couple decades, Decades, you don't see a lot of M&A when it should happen at periods like a year ago. You see it at periods like maybe right now where you have the major indexes in the public markets back towards recent highs or all-time highs, that sort of thing. And obviously, M&A is really spotty, the history of it. And definitely in technology, I don't really know what, like it seems like you know there's been nonstop consolidation as long as I've been in the markets in the energy patch guy. And we're what, on the, on the cusp of $130 billion worth of M&A by two of the largest integrated. But I I would expect to see a lot of strategic M&A in parts of tech and maybe in media over the next year or so. And maybe a bunch of these companies that went public via SPAC, you might see private equity take a bunch of these out too. Because even with the cost of funding right now, these valuations have just been absolutely eviscerated. Yeah. One of the things we discussed is if you're a good company, uh, but you're an ex you're an expensive company, meaning you're probably a little bit overvalued. Why wouldn't you go use your stock to potentially make acquisitions to fill product holes that you may have, to fuel revenue growth, to do the things that allow you to do? Why wouldn't you? That that actually is what you should be doing with your expensive currency, no doubt. And I want to ha hammer in on some of these energy stocks you just mentioned in this deal, guy. I know we want to talk about that. A lot of news today with OPEC Plus finally coming to the table. It looks like Brazil's going to be being added as we talked about. Uh, couple of weeks ago with, we asked that question to Lee McCroft, point blank, do you think that happened? She said, that's a good question. Plenty of possibility. That's happening. And so I, I definitely want to dive into some of these names. Hold on. Before you dive in real quick. Yeah. And because this is, I'm going to tie some ribbons around a few things. Earlier this week, Charlie Munger passed away. We spent a lot, long time on Fast Money discussing his life and legendary life. But I mentioned that because we should, number one. But number two, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway now owns, I want to say, 25% of Occidental Petroleum, which is a staggering number. Historically, when they venture into companies, those stocks typically go parabolic, Danny. And in terms of Oxy, though, it's gone nowhere now for the better part of a year. I mean, as we're sitting here, it's actually below 60 bucks, but either side is 60 for quite some time. So I know you probably want to bring that up, but bring that up in the context of some of these other energy names, which I think 
are trading at really depressed multiples right now. Yeah, I guess Oxy is now in the mix to potentially bid on uh, the private company Crown Rock, right, which is going to be out there. Listen, you have ExxonMobil looking to buy Pioneer PXD. You have Chevron looking to buy Hess. Both of those trade at like, it's a small arbitrage. It's like a two or 3% discount, you know, based on where these deals should close if you want to buy the targeted companies themselves. But I'm looking at these companies, four to 5% dividend yields, nine to 10 times earnings multiple, great balance sheets at this point. And to Dan's point, these are companies that have been making acquisitions since their inception. They know what they're doing. And these were very strategic in nature, gets them areas of the world to develop, gives them production as miles as far as the eyes can see. And so I think these are strategic. Again, this is my point. I'm not saying that you have to own kind of the old guard of stocks going into 2024, but let's revisit what happened at the end this time last year, how people were positioning themselves. They were long energy. They were long banks. They weren't underweight tech or they were short tech thinking that, you know, the obvious would happen, that the slowdown would start to occur. It kind of did, kind of didn't. But then we don't have to rehash all of 2023 at this point with the banks and everything that went on. I think this is the opposite. I think the risk reward of owning ExxonMobil or its target, Chevron or its target, Occidental, whatever you want to do here is warranted. Not just trying to predict the price of oil per se, although I think we pretty much, I think we have a floor here unless you're a hard landing person. So GM. Exxon, Chevron, these names that have dividends that pay back and are cheap. If you like the economy, you think we're okay. To me, these are no-brainers. And I think that money will end up in the first quarter. The opposite's going to happen. I know we're not talking about our look forward for 2024, but that's, I think these are really interesting companies. And listen, you get production data, you get oil reserve data, like we're back to the five-year levels and you know, kind of oil reserves and stuff like that. So people trade off of these near-term fluctuations in production and demand. And I think it's bigger than that. So that's all. Let's stay with the theme. Are you ready, Danny? You're really on fire today. I've got some good old loving, and I've got some more in store. Remember this. When I get through throwing it on you, you got to come running back for more. And you're saying, oh, what are you talking about now? This is what I'm talking about, Danny. Have you seen the J.P. Morgan survey by any chance? The number of bulls out there, the fact that money is now once again flowing in in a major way. People are coming running back for more, just like they did. It's old school stuff right before our very eyes. And quite frankly, I don't know about you, but I don't think that's necessarily such a good thing. It's, talk to me about that. It's a J.P. Morgan client survey. It started in 1991. So you have 32 years of data here. I think you're referring to the Treasury, cash Treasury yes. survey. People running back into bonds. Again, the ship tilts one way, it tilts back the other. This whole year has been like that on every product, on every commodity, on every currency. It's been so volatile in one way. And you just summed up my whole point on the entire market. You have to be able to have inputs, I get it, to be able to present value something, present value your risk, your discount rate. You're, you may have an input in a particular currency that you're evaluating a company, right? It could be a rate, it could be whatever. It makes it very, very difficult. And this is why I go back to owning the companies and the good companies that have been through this. You can't make a play on mortgage rates just because you see a move in the 10-year from 490 to 420. You can trade them on the margin and take off the extreme on both sides. But I think you just summed it up. And this is happening again in some of the meme stocks. And every time we get one of these rallies kind of on the tail end of one of these big moves in the market where the, the game stops and the Carvanas and the, everything else going, you can see it lasts. It's volatile, but it's shorter in length each time. And it tells me that we're getting close. So again, own the quality. And, you know, yes, use these sentiment surveys and these actual surveys to tell you and don't fall into the trap of being part of the 78 percent. Be the person that thinks outside of the box and is a contrarian guy. The Robinson brothers uh, that comprised the Black Crows, Dan, are his, they are famously Atlanta, Atlanta known. Man, by the way. They don't get along. Yeah. They do not like each other. 
And in our final piece of this Black Crow's puzzle, Danny, you know who didn't like certain the folks that were trading nickel futures on the London Mercantile Exchange were not getting along with the aforementioned LME. And there's been after they canceled trades years ago, and we'll put it in the show notes, but there's been some sort of, I don't know, some sort of outcome here you wanted to discuss. So this was back in March of 2022, Russia invasion, Russia, the largest producer of nickel. Everyone wanted an electric vehicle. So nickel was in high demand. And you had the situation where there was a large metal producer in China that was short over the counter, not necessarily on the exchange, 150,000 tons of nickel, supposedly, because they're going to produce X and deliver it in the future. And nickel proceeded to run. And I think it's around $16,000 a ton now, just to put it in perspective, accelerated from 24 to 48,000 on kind of March 7th, 2022. Then the next day shot up to 100,000. They halted trading. They took all those trades off. They said that it would bankrupt at all the clearing companies, whatever. JP Morgan, it turns out, remember, was a counterparty to this Chinese conglomerate at the time, and they would be on the hook for $7 billion. A lot of ways to read into it. Bottom line is the high court in the UK just ruled in favor of the LME, and Elliott was basically suing and saying, you know, we're owed up to almost half a billion dollars. Them and Jane Street, I believe, we were owed half a billion because you took these, quote, trades off the tape, and they should have been right. LME said, well, we we didn't know that all these OTC trades were happening. To me, it's bullshit. Where was like, you know, when the oil traded at negative $30, you can make a lot of arguments, but this is, this to me is when you get involved capitalism. I had no position in nickel. I don't, but shame on the LME, which is owned by the way, by Hong Kong exchange. Just so we know. So I disagree with this. I think it's wrong and I get it. Like you can't take advantage of war times and things like that, but this guy made a short bet when China got crushed on it. He should be, should have been taken out. So that's now coming. Listen, what's to say this can't happen again? Obviously it may not happen nickel because the LME is now put in controls and volatility measures and trigger events and stuff like that. So I just hate when things like that end up happening because it doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't seem to happen to the good people. Seems to get these people get off the hook from time to time. And so I have a real problem with it. It is what it is. It's done and gone. But it was a bigger situation that people knew in the market. I get it, but I don't think it should have been taken off. It was one of those 10 Sigma events that happened theoretically every you know 100 years or something. We actually talked to Terry Duffy about that in a prior podcast I think a year and a half or so ago. You don't think the long-term capital would have liked to have back their Russian ruble uh, sterling trade from 1998? I, yes. I'm sure they would have loved that. I mean, there back. are a lot of, if you believe in markets, free markets, I mean, you're right. Those trades should have stood. How about the Amrith natural gas How trade? about it? How, how'd that work out? Anyway, sorry. No, don't be, there's nothing to be sorry about. What also uh, you have nothing to be sorry about is your performance this year in the National Football League, the league where they play for pay, as I mentioned earlier, you come into this week a robust 20 at 14. By the way, a record that you promised you would be at a few weeks or so ago. So not only have you been you re, you've basically reestablished yourself, you've proved to be a bit of a soothsayer in terms of your record. Now, you're going to push the envelope this week because you have a number of picks that you're bringing forth. So you're playing with fire as they say, but you know what? When you're on a roll, Stay on the roll. So, Danny, as we approach week, I believe, 13. Is that correct? Remarkable. What are you looking at? I'm going four games this week to make up for my only having done one, obviously, last week here. But I happen to like four games. Two are home underdogs. I'll get to those first. I'm sorry, but I'm taking the Eagles plus three at home against San Francisco. Obviously, crazy game last week against the Bills. I don't know how you bet against the Eagles. I know San Fran's look sharp. And I'll tell you this. Brock Purdy is currently a 10 to 1 or 11 to 1 to be MVP of the league, Jalen Hurts is one and a half to one. Nothing I would ever bet at one and a half to one. If you really think San Francisco is going to win this game, 
Go bet Brock Purdy at MVP at 10 to 1. That'd be my suggestion. But I'm taking the Eagles plus three at home guy. Green Bay, I think they're a live dog at home on Sunday night against Kansas City. I just don't think Kansas City is that good. I watch them play every week. I bet against them a few times. Green Bay is looking pretty good. They have some injuries. But give me Green Bay in Lambeau Field. Back in the playoff hunt, by the way. They're hot plus six at home. Give me the points against Kansas City. And then Denver going into Houston, getting three and a half. Probably the hottest team in, in football. Again, they're in the playoff hunt. Give me three and a half. Houston, I love CJ Stroud. I love that Houston team. I think it's a close game. Denver plus three and a half. And then the Rams, another team that got hot at home, laying three and a half against Cleveland. Cooper Cup's coming back. Cleveland's got some serious injuries now. Joe Flacco may play quarterback this weekend. Give me the Rams at home minus three and a half. Those are my four picks. All right, guys, that was fun. Thanks again to Mike Wilson for joining us on the pod this week. Also, tune in to Market Call Monday through Thursday, 1 p.m. Eastern. Guy and myself joined by Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting and also Liz Young on Thursdays. You can find it on our YouTube page. So thanks a lot for being here. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.